Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Jesus Is. We will be looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus made. Here's Pastor Nick. All right, so let's, uh, we're in our series right now, looking at the seven I am statements. The Gospel of John is structured around seven I am statements that Jesus made and seven signs that Jesus performed, which all show us who he is and what he came to do. So in our current series, we're looking at the seven I am statements. In the next series we'll do, right after Easter, we'll be looking at the seven signs listed in the Gospel of John that Jesus performed that tell us who he is. So please bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open God's word today. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. Thank you, Lord, for your loving care for us. Thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us as orphans, but Lord, you, you have given us your spirit to lead us and guide us. You've given us your word to transform us. And so, Lord, we ask this morning, as we hear your word, may we not just understand what it says, but may we apply it to our lives and allow it to have its power transforming us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I took my family to Stonehenge. See, because where I went to school for my undergrad in the west of England was really close to where Stonehenge is located. So I thought it'd be fun to take our kids out to see Stonehenge. So we rented a car, we drove down there. But when we arrived, what we discovered is that although Stonehenge is free, you don't have to pay for it. It's out in a field. Yet they've kind of arranged the area. They've even done landscaping and all these things to make it blocked off so that you have to pay to take this bus to go out and see it. Well, I don't like paying for things, and so I thought, you know, we'll just walk. Well, the closest you can get by car is about a mile and a half from Stonehenge, right? Because they try and get you to pay for all this stuff. So I'm like, we're not paying. We're walking. But Rosemary's like, you know, we had an infant at the time. Rosemary's like, I'm not walking. So she stayed at the car. So I got the other kids, and I'm like, all right, kids, let's go. We're going to walk and see Stonehenge. And so we're walking. You know, we have to walk over this hill. That's why you can't see it. you got to walk over this hill to see it, and it's like a mile and a half. The kids are complaining. They're getting tired, you know telling me they need water, they're going to die. And then we finally get over the hill, and there's Stonehenge. And I say, kids, look, here we are. This is a World Heritage Site. Nobody knows how they did this or why they did it. Isn't it amazing? And the kids looked at it and said, oh, yeah, cool rocks. Hey, look, there's some sheep. And so then they saw these sheep. And so for the next hour, the same kids who are apparently about to die from walking, for an hour, they just spent an hour running after sheep and chasing them through the field. And later on, I asked them, you know, what was the best part of our trip to England? They said, Stonehenge, but not, not the rocks, but the part where we chased the sheep. That was the best thing that happened in England. I guess that's a lot of fun. So sheep are talked about over 300 times in the Bible. That's more than any other animal. And throughout the Bible, we as human beings are compared to sheep, whereas the Bible tells us that God is like a shepherd. And I think for many of us, right, when we hear that we are sheep and God is a shepherd, doesn't that just feel you, fill you with these warm, fuzzy feelings? Well, if it does, then you haven't understood what it means that you're being called a sheep. Because here's the thing. When the Bible says that you are like a sheep, it's not meant to be a compliment. You see, when the Bible says that you're like a sheep, it is a well-intentioned and gentle insult, actually. Because a sheep is not a very clever animal. If you've ever been around sheep, they're about as sharp as a basketball. So the thing about sheep is, 
On the one hand, they have this natural tendency to stray and run away from the shepherd, the one who's caring for them. But on the other hand, they're completely dependent on the shepherd for everything. So most animals, like a horse or a dog, if they don't have an owner or a trainer, they go wild. But a sheep without a shepherd dies because sheep are completely dependent on their shepherd for absolutely everything, for their safety, for their protection. They have no natural defenses. They're not even good at running away. They, they depend on the shepherd for everything, for food and for sustenance. And that's why the worst thing that a sheep can do is to run away from its shepherd. And yet, that is what sheep, by nature, constantly do. And that, God is saying, is what we are like as people. That's a good picture of us. That's why there are verses like Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. It says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has gone our own way. In Psalm 119, the writer says, I have wandered away like a lost sheep. Come and search for me and find me. You see, sheep need a shepherd to protect them, to feed them, and to rescue them. And so when the Bible says that we are like sheep and God is like a shepherd, that's telling us both a lot about us and who we are and our nature as people. But it's also telling us a lot about God and who he is and what he does and what he's like. And that's why it's so meaningful that as his fourth I am statement in the Gospel of John, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. The title of today's message is Jesus is the good shepherd. And what we're going to see in our passage today is that as the good shepherd, Jesus personally knows and lovingly serves those who are in his flock. So that's our summary statement, summary sentence, takeaway truth. Write it down in your notes in the margin of your Bible, and that'll also serve as our outline for studying this passage today. But hopefully just that thought as we repeat it and go through it in our study today, it'll help it to stick in your mind this week as you go from here. So as the good shepherd, Jesus personally knows and lovingly serves those who are in his flock. Let's look at the first part of that. The good shepherd. In the Gospel of John chapter 10, starting in verse 11, we are picking up in the middle of a conversation which began at the beginning of this chapter, John chapter 10, which we looked at last week. So last week in our study, we were looking at the third of Jesus' I am statements, where Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. That conversation began at the beginning of chapter 10, and now we're jumping in where we left off last week in verse 11, looking at the next I am statement, I am the good shepherd. Now the context for this conversation is found in the previous chapter, in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, where Jesus healed a man who was born blind. Now that would be a good thing, right? We would think, who wouldn't be excited about that? But there was one group of people who did not think that was a good thing, that Jesus had healed this man. That group was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very highly respected, very influential at this time in Israel. They were the social and religious conservatives of that day, and they saw it as their job and as their duty to hold back the floodgates of liberalism, which threatened Judaism and which threatened their culture. The problem was that oftentimes in doing that, right, they created barriers which God did not set up. In, in their attempts to do this thing, which was perhaps a righteous desire, 
they oftentimes misrepresented the heart of God. They acted as if they were the gatekeepers of Judaism. Like they got to say who's in and who's out, but sometimes they set the boundaries in the wrong places. And Jesus was very quick to point that out to the people, right? He was quick to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, to point out when they were doing things which were not actually according to God's heart. And for that reason, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus because they saw Jesus as a threat to their power, their influence, and their authority. And so when this man started going around and telling everybody that Jesus had healed him of his blindness, well, that made them upset. And so they told this man, hey, you better stop talking about Jesus in such a positive way. And if you don't stop talking about Jesus like this, that we're going to kick you out of the synagogue. Now, kicking him out of the synagogue was just basically a, a way of saying they were going to excommunicate him from Judaism as a whole. But this man said, wait, wait, wait a second. What do you mean, stop talking about what Jesus did for me? I was blind for my entire life, and then Jesus healed me. How can I not talk about that? And so the Pharisees said, fine, if you're going to not stop talking about it, then we're going to kick you out. So it says there in John 9, 34, that they cast him out, which means they excommunicated him. They kicked him out of Judaism. Now, this was really the ultimate punishment for a Jew at that time because it had religious implications and it had social implications. In their minds, to be kicked out of Judaism meant that you were not just cut off from the community, but you were actually considered to be cut off from God. Right? That's the context for this conversation. This man's been healed of blindness. He's talked about it. He was threatened with being kicked out. Now, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, have actually excommunicated him from Judaism. And it says that Jesus went and found him after this had happened and spoke with him. That's the context for this conversation. Around this, as Jesus is talking to this man, imagine his disciples are standing there listening. There are also some of the Pharisees who are standing around and hearing what Jesus is saying. And we pick up the conversation in verse 11 where Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. Now when Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, what you need to understand is that he is making a contrast between himself and the religious leaders of that time. Jesus is making a contrast between himself and the religious leaders of that time. What Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of Israel are bad shepherds. They're bad shepherds, and in contrast to them, he is the good shepherd. Now again, remember the setting. The Pharisees just excommunicated this guy because he told the truth and said that Jesus healed him. Now why would they do that? Obviously, it wasn't because they were concerned about the truth. If they were concerned about the truth, they would have looked into the details, listened to the testimony of even this man's parents who said, yes, he was blind his whole life. The testimony of other people who had seen him sitting on the side of the road begging because he was blind and he couldn't work. Obviously, this was not because of a concern for the truth. Clearly, it was not at all a concern for this man. Obviously, they did this because they were concerned about shoring up and protecting their own power, influence, and authority in that society. And Jesus is saying, these people, they have set themselves up as shepherds of the people, but they are bad shepherds. They are bad shepherds. 
Throughout the Bible, spiritual leaders are referred to as shepherds. You see this in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're introduced to the term pastor, which we still use today. And the word pastor is simply the Latin word for shepherds. So throughout the Bible, shepherds or spiritual leaders are referred to as shepherds. Now, spiritual leaders, in other words, are called to care for the souls of people in the ways that a shepherd cares for sheep. But even in Israel's own history, many of those who were called shepherds of God's people were often bad shepherds. They didn't do a good job as shepherds. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 23 and in Ezekiel chapter 34, God speaks out against the bad shepherds of his people. And he promises then to send them the Messiah to be the good shepherd. So here we see in Jeremiah 23, let me just read to you the first few verses. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them far away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. The bad spiritual leaders of Israel... What were they doing? They were actually, rather than leading people in God's ways, rather than drawing people to God, Jeremiah tells us that they were actually driving people away from God. Now, isn't that still the case even today? There are people who are bad leaders spiritually, and what is the effect? They drive people not just away from church, but even away from God. You know, Barna Research did a study a few years ago. They did a big survey in which they asked people who identify as non-religious. So people who identify as non-religious, they asked them, why do you reject Christianity? And here's what they found is so interesting. They said that in their poll, in their study, most people who reject Christianity and call themselves non-religious, they do not do so because of a lack of evidence, right? They don't say, well, there's just not enough evidence to believe, right? Scientifically or historically or whatever. That isn't the main reason that people give for rejecting Christianity. No, actually what they found is that the main reason why people said that they reject Christianity was not because of evidence, but because of personal experiences, being hurt by Christian people or, or because they had a bad experience with a Christian leader. Just like in the time of Jeremiah, there are people today who are bad shepherds. And sadly, bad shepherds have this effect. They, they tend to drive people away from God. And maybe there are some of you here today, you know, you've been hurt by bad shepherds, Christian leaders who didn't represent the heart of Jesus. Maybe they were harsh or unkind. Maybe they hurt you or sinned against you in some way. And if that's you, I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's happened to you. And I would also tell you this. I would want you to look at this passage here in Jeremiah 23 and see how God feels about that. Because it's important to see this. What God is saying here in Jeremiah 23 is he says when it comes to bad shepherds, he's not okay with it. He's not okay with them misrepresenting his heart. He's not okay with them hurting his sheep. He says these people are supposed to be shepherds, but they're doing a bad job. They're misleading people, misrepresenting his heart and hurting his sheep. And he says, I will deal with those people. And yet the next thing God says in this passage is this in verse 5. He says, behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So after speaking out against the bad shepherds, God promises to one day send a good shepherd to the people who will truly represent his heart, who will lead his people in the right way. And he tells these people, listen, rather than allowing the bad shepherds to drive you away from me, I want you to fix your attention and set your hopes on the good shepherd who I'm going to send, the Messiah. Now, throughout the Bible, from the very moment that sin entered into the human story and into the world, God promised that he would send a person, a person who would save us from the curse of sin and death. That Savior was called the Messiah. And over the course of time, God revealed more and more, kind of like creating a trail of breadcrumbs, if you will, right? Dropping a crumb here, dropping a crumb there, leading us to this Messiah. And he would give us more and more revelation about who this Messiah would be. He would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be a king, not just any king. He would be a king as the heir of the throne of David. He would be born in Bethlehem. He'd be born of a virgin. He would heal the blind, the sick, the lepers, and the lame. He would suffer and he would die for the sins of the people. And somehow he would actually live forever. And what God tells us here through the prophet Jeremiah is that when this Messiah comes, this is who he will be. He will be the good shepherd, unlike the corrupt, self-seeking spiritual leaders who drive people away from God by their actions, the Messiah will represent the heart of God accurately and truly. He will lead people in God's ways righteously. You see, by calling himself the good shepherd, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, the one promised in Jeremiah chapter 23. And he's saying that the Pharisees and the spiritual leaders of his day, they were bad shepherds, just like the spiritual leaders in Jeremiah's day. But now in him, Jesus is saying, God has finally sent the good shepherd, the Messiah to his people, and they should follow him. But you know what else? That's not the only thing that Jesus was saying by calling himself the good shepherd. Here's why. In Ezekiel chapter 34, in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesies against, similar to Jeremiah, he prophesies against the bad shepherds of God's people. But here's the difference. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God says that not only will he send a good shepherd, but that he himself will come to his people to be the good shepherd for them. You see, by calling himself the good shepherd, Jesus wasn't only saying that he is the Messiah. He was also claiming to be God, come to his people to care for them and to save them. And how would he save them? Well, Jesus says there in the second part of verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, this is different from the attitude of others. Look at what he says in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand, and he cares nothing for the sheep. 
you know, any of you who've had a job or owned a business, you know that there's a difference, right, between the mentality of an employee versus the mentality of an owner, right? An employee's there to do their job and get their paycheck and then get out of there. But an owner has a vested interest. They care a lot more than the employees do because they're invested in a very different way. And what Jesus is saying here is this, that because he is God, he actually cares about people more than the Pharisees do because he created those people. The Bible says that God knit you together in love in your mother's womb, that he knows more about you than you even know about yourself. So unlike the bad shepherds of Israel, Jesus has a personal vested interest in you because he created you, because he sustains your life from moment to moment. So rather than standing by idly or stepping aside and allowing you to be attacked and ultimately destroyed by the enemies of your soul, Jesus has come as the good shepherd to rescue you by laying down his life for you. Now again, think about the difference. The Pharisees were more than happy to just kick this guy out of Judaism because they viewed him as a threat to their power. They had no concern for this man's soul. In order to protect their position in that society, they were willing to throw this man to the wolves spiritually and in their minds cut him off from God and condemn his soul to hell. And they were okay with that just to protect their own positions and their own power. That's not love. That's not good shepherding. That is self-protection at the cost of this man's soul. And Jesus is saying, I'm not like that. Instead of protecting myself at the cost of people's lives and souls, I have come as the good shepherd, the true owner of the sheep, in order to save your souls at the cost of my life. You see, that brings us back to our sentence. The good shepherd, as the good shepherd, Jesus personally knows. He goes on in verse 14 to say, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. As the good shepherd, God wants to have a personal relationship with his sheep. He's not contented to just own the sheep. He wants to know them. And you know, it's one thing to know about somebody, and it's another thing altogether to know that person in a relationship. For example, I know a lot about Peyton Manning and Russell Wilson, but I don't know them, right? Like I text them, they don't text me back, right? But we don't have a relationship. Let's put it that way. And there's a difference between knowing a lot of things about something or somebody and knowing somebody. And, and this really was pointed out to me several years ago. A friend of mine pointed this out to me, and it was a turning point in my life. You see, she showed me the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says that on the day of judgment, many people will be in for a terrible surprise. Because although they thought they did things for God and they knew a lot of stuff about God, when they stand before God, he will send them away and he'll say, depart from me because I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And this friend of mine asked me straight up, she said, is that you? Are you this person who knows things about God, but you don't actually have a relationship with God? And she was right. And that conversation was a turning point in my life. It's what led me to begin pursuing a relationship with God, not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him. See, the fact is, guys, God knows everything about you. He even knows the things about you 
that you try to keep other people from knowing about you, right? He knows all your secrets. He knows all your thoughts. All those things which you say, if anybody ever knew this about me, there's no way they could ever accept me. There's no way they could ever like me or much less love me. And yet God knows all of those things. And in spite of it, he still wants a relationship with you. Something interesting happened in February of 1925. Here's what happened. In New York City, a surgeon named Dr. Evans Keith had his appendix removed. Now, that's not a big deal, right? Lots of people get their appendix removed. But this was unique because this was the first time in history that an appendectomy had been done using only local anesthetic. And see, Dr. Evans Keith, he was the one who was advocating. He's saying it would be much safer and much more efficient if we did these appendix surgeries, you know, removing an appendix, if we did it only with local anesthesia. And yet, nobody wanted to be the first one to go under the knife and test it out because what if he was wrong? Like, what if it didn't work? But Dr. Keith was so sure that it would work that even though he didn't need an appendectomy, he went under the knife in order to show the people that it was safe, what he was advocating for. In other words, in order to help his patients trust the doctor, the doctor became a patient. He went under the knife himself. Now, Jesus did something very similar for us. Here's what Jesus did. The good shepherd became a sheep so that we sheep might know the shepherd. See, according to Jewish ceremonial law, if you read in the Old Testament, in order for people to commune with God, they had to bring a lamb to the temple for a sin offering. The priests would carefully inspect and scrutinize the lamb to see if it had any defects or blemishes in it. Notice that it's interesting. They didn't inspect the integrity of the worshiper to see if the worshiper was without sin, to see if they were without blemish. No, they inspected not the worshiper, but the integrity of the sacrifice. And they would inspect the sacrifice. It was found to be worthy without blemish or defect. Then that sacrifice could be made to atone for the sins of the people. Now in this case, in that scenario, a sheep would die for its owner. The sheep would die for the sins of the shepherd. But here in the Gospel of John, we're told something very important about Jesus. One of the first things we're told about Jesus in the first chapter of the Gospel of John comes when John the Baptist introduces the crowds to Jesus. And here's what he says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, in order for us, in order for you to have a relationship with God, your sins have to be removed. And in order for your sins to be removed permanently, once and for all, so you can enter into relationship with God, here's what Jesus did for us. He became the ultimate sacrifice. He was the only one who could do it because he's the only one who was without blemish. Right? He lived a perfect life of obedience to God. He fulfilled in his life all all the righteous requirements of the law. See, the message of the gospel is that the good shepherd, God, became a sheep in the person of Jesus Christ. And he submitted himself to slaughter so that we sheep could know our shepherd. And that brings us back again to our sentence. As the good shepherd, Jesus personally knows and lovingly serves. He says in verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
later on in this book, Jesus explains to his disciples. In chapter 15, he explains to them, greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And then he tells them, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. What Jesus is saying is, there is no greater love in the world than the love that I have for you. And the proof of my love is the way that I lovingly care for you and ultimately lay down my life for you. Friends, if you ever wonder if God loves you, the Bible would say that you need to look no further than to the cross on which Jesus died for you. It says in the book of Romans chapter 5 that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, with that in mind, I want you to also consider what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, where it says this, Now he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God has met your greatest need in Jesus, then you can be completely confident that God will meet all of your other needs as well. If he's already proven his love for you in Jesus, who gave his life for you, then you can trust that he will also meet all of your needs and provide for you in every other area of your life as well. Now listen, that doesn't mean that he's going to always give you everything that you want when you want it. But it does mean that you can entrust your life to him and that in every area of your life you can trust him because he has proven that he loves you. And so you can know that he will lovingly care for you as a good shepherd. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence. As the good shepherd, Jesus personally knows and lovingly serves those who are in his flock. Jesus continues in verse 16. And I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The other sheep that Jesus is talking about are Gentiles. In other words, non-Jews, right? So people who are not in the fold, in the sheep pen of Judaism, God wants to bring them into his flock as well. But in order for them to enter in, they will have to come through the door of the sheep, which is Jesus. There's no other way into God's flock except through him. But Jesus is helping these people to understand that God's love and concern doesn't only extend to Jewish people. It extends to the entire world. If you look at the Old Testament prophecies made about the Messiah, it's clear there as well that the Messiah would come through the Jewish nation but he would be the savior of the entire world. Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So on the one hand, we know and we can see that Jesus was killed by corrupt people who essentially murdered him. But on the other hand, Jesus allowed them to do it. 
over and over through the Gospels, we see that Jesus had every opportunity to escape if he had wanted to. He could have just walked off. One of my most vivid memories of this, we stood in the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem. And there, when you stand in that garden, you realize that Jesus could have easily just walked off into the night and disappeared and not gone to the cross. And yet he waited there in the garden for them to come and arrest him. He had every opportunity to get out of it, and yet he chose to go to the cross. He laid down his life on purpose because he knew that it was the only way for you and I to be saved. But not only did Jesus lay down his life of his own accord, it says here that he also raised up his own life by his own accord, that he had the power to do that. Now this is interesting because this is one of the very few passages in the New Testament which tells us that Jesus raised himself up from the grave. Other places, they attribute Jesus' resurrection to the work of the Father. The Father raised up the Son in at least one other place. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus rose from the dead. And yet here it says that Jesus raised himself from the dead. So which one was it? Did the Father do it? Did the Son do it? Did the Holy Spirit do it? Of course, the answer is yes to all of those. And this is one of the reasons why we believe in what's called the doctrine of the Trinity, which means that there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct and yet equal persons. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And yet there is one God. It, this wasn't three actions, right? Raising Jesus wasn't three actions. It was one action, and it's an action which could only be done by God. And so we must conclude that God is a trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now here's what happened as a result of what Jesus said here. It says in verse 19, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he, is, he has a demon and he's insane. Why would anyone listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of someone who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? See, the people were divided. As the people heard what Jesus said, they realized that his words required a response from them. They couldn't just continue on living their lives as they had before. They needed to respond. What Jesus was claiming was so huge, it was so audacious, that they either had to reject it and say that he was crazy, or if what he was saying was actually true, then it demanded their entire life. It demanded their allegiance, their all. They had to believe in him and actually follow him. But what they understood very clearly was that they could not remain neutral. They couldn't stay on the fence. And friends, this is true for us today as well. If you really understand what Jesus is saying here, the one thing you cannot do is you cannot remain neutral. You cannot just do nothing about it. Either what Jesus is saying here is true or it's not. If it's not, then by all means, don't follow him. He's a fraud. He's a charlatan, a con man. But listen, if it is true, then this is the most important message in the world. And again, here's what he's saying, just so we're clear. He sums it up in verses 27 through 30. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here's the question for you today Are you in his flock? Are you in his flock? Have you responded to his call? The message of the gospel is this, 
that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, but the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus, the good shepherd, became the sacrificial lamb so that you could be part of his flock, so that you could know him as the shepherd of your soul. And so let me ask you again, are you in his flock? Have you responded to his call? I want you to notice one last thing about these passages. All these passages about God as the shepherd and about us as sheep, notice this. They just assume that sheep are sheep. And what they tell us is not what the sheep need to do for the shepherd. What they tell us is what the shepherd has done and will do for the sheep. Friends, the message of the gospel is not a message of what you need to do for God. The message of the gospel is the message of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And yet, the only way to know the Lord as your shepherd, the only way to experience the salvation that he offers, the only way to experience relationship with him is by responding to his call, which means when you hear his voice, you respond and you follow him. So I want to encourage you today to stay close to the shepherd. Make that your goal for this coming week, to stay close to the shepherd. Stay close to the shepherd, the one who loves you, who cares for you, and who laid down his life to save you for your salvation. And it is as you walk with the shepherd that you will find rest for your soul and guidance for your life and true and ultimate security. Friends, the good shepherd, as the good shepherd, Jesus personally knows and lovingly serves those who are in his flock. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.